Hello and welcome to another episode. I'm pleased to be joined today by a fellow content creator, science communicator, and promoter of secular humanist rationalism, Dr. Blitz. Blitz has a PhD in mathematical physics. His expertise is going to help us answer the question of, why should anybody care about quantum mechanics? The ways classical physics, chemistry, and biology influence our lives are obvious, but quantum mechanics is not. Because quantum mechanics is also misunderstood, it's used both intentionally and unintentionally to push a lot of bogus narratives, be it to undergird the latest Marvel movie or to convince someone that consciousness, God, and free will have been scientifically proven. Let's get started. Okay, Blitz, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I figured I would just let you introduce yourself in whatever way you want. Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a, what you might call a young researcher. I finished my PhD last year. Um, I work at a university in the middle of Europe. I'm not going to tell you where. And uh, I primarily do research in, uh, in a mathematics department. I work with uh, some geometric structures of black holes and some more purely mathematical things involving Informal geometry. Uh, on TikTok, I spend a lot of time making science videos. <laughs> and uh, when I'm not doing that on TikTok, I spend a lot of time arguing with conspiracy theorists, uh, right-wingers, and um, religious people. Same. So your professional work, so the work, the scientific work that you do helps us understand more about black holes. That's what a lot of your research is focused in. So it's actually something I've only recently got interested in. My PhD work was mostly, uh, you could even say it was mostly mathematics. Um, it definitely had applications to some work in physics, especially some of this like stringy stuff. But um, my PhD advisor was a mathematician who also got his PhD in physics however many years ago. Um, but uh, in the last six, nine months or so, I've made some new connections at various conferences and I've started some projects on black hole stuff. That's cool. That's really cool. So for you, how did you get into math and physics in the first place and then later decide that you wanted to do this as a professional? Um, I don't know how typical the story is, uh, but I was so my mother will tell the story that I always wanted to be a scientist. Right. You know, I was always drawing pictures of beakers or whatever. But uh, I have this very distinct memory. I was hanging out with my best friend, Zach, at the time. We were just trolling around on the Internet, early 2000s Internet. Right. Um, and we stumbled upon like a picture of a black hole. I think it was from Brian Greene's Fabric of the Cosmos or something, some illustration associated with it. And I'm like, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. I'm going to do that. And then later I saw a PBS Nova special. Again, I think it was Brian Greene. Um, he had a, it, it, was a, it was either Fabric of the Cosmos or some other um, Nova special that he had. And I'm like, string theory is so cool. And Albert Einstein is so cool. And all of these things are so cool. Um, and I was good at math. Like I was, I was already pretty good at math. So I'm like, this is what I'm going to do. And so since I was nine, it was basically been like single-minded goal. Uh, I'm going to do my, I'm going to do a PhD and then I'll be a professor hopefully. Uh, and you know, I've, I'm just <laughs> 21 years later. Right. Um, I even applied to go to Cambridge for undergrad. They did not let me in. Oh, wow. They, yeah, I don't, I don't know. They probably accept somewhere like 5% of applicants or something like that. I, also being a foreigner, you know? Yeah. That's true. So ever since you were nine years old, that's that's awesome. That's a that's a pretty cool character arc. I think that Nova is like one of the most underappreciated things. Oh, so it's, much. It's so incredibly good. It's just so good. 
Um, okay, so we'll jump right into the quantum mechanics thing. So the first thing I want to do is eventually we're going to get to the point of like, why should like the typical lay person care about it? And also, uh, but we're going to begin with just trying to understand it a little bit better because, you know, me, I, I have a degree in science, but it's biology. Uh, I, I care about this stuff, but it's, it's tricky. You know, like the typical person, it's, it's very hard to understand what quantum mechanics really is. So hopefully we can get uh, some of that out of this. So my first thing is, what question or questions were scientists trying to answer that led them to discover quantum mechanics? Oh, you're quizzing me on the history of quantum mechanics. Right, so um, there, was a, there was really well understood physics, at least what they thought was really well understood physics, up until really 1899. Um, it was thought that physics was done. They had a complete description of gravity, a la Newton in, what, 1666 or whatever. Uh, Maxwell formalized his famous equations um, in the late 1800s. I can never remember the year. And by 1899, they're like, well, that's everything. Electromagnetism is everything, and gravity is everything. Everything else is just, it's, it's peanuts, right? And then I want to say it was 1900, I, th I think, when uh, Max Planck rolls around and says, hey, you know that thing that we couldn't explain but what you thought was just not a problem? Well, it's actually a problem, and I have a solution. It's some, the story is something like that anyway. Um, this was the, uh, the ultraviolet catastrophe. There was a, a problem with predicting the amount of radiation that a hot thing gives off, right? You heat up a lump of metal, it glows, figuring out how much radiation it gives off, how much light it gives off, and uh, what color that light is was a problem. And Max Planck came up with a solution, but the solution involved saying, look, um, the light waves that you thought it was giving off, they can only come in discrete chunks, right. meaning it's not waves, it's particles. And from there, uh, over the next, you know, 25 years, uh, quantum mechanics was entirely formalized in no small part due to my boy, Albert Einstein, who revolutionized three fields in 10 years. Yeah, because Newton thought light was waves and they had yep. they had good uh, they had a good reason to think so. And then this overturned that. So I never um, um, I never heard that Planck sort of initiated that. But I did know that didn't Einstein sort of give us the concept of a, a quantum or like a, a packet of energy? Because what he actually won his Nobel Prize in was the photoelectric effect, yeah. which has quantum mechanical implications, right? Yeah, so so the idea is that Max Planck, Max Planck said, what if light could only come in packets with this much energy? Mm. And that was like a what if. They had no idea at the time. And then five years later, Einstein is like, well, actually, we can prove that that's what happens. Okay. That's why he won his Nobel Prize. Okay, yeah. Yeah, he should have won about he should have won three eight. yeah but <laughs> well i'd go i'd go way more than three but yeah and then it's fun we'll get to this later but it's kind of funny you know he then he then came to disagree with a lot of implications in quantum mechanics and it's, it's kind of funny i guess maybe he was a little bit more of a classicist in that sense but he how can you be a revolutionary and then uh and then also yeah be well a classicist? because it's because funny. i think when he was doing special relativity and the photoelectric effect he was in his 20s uh, when you get to be in your 40s and 50s, you become a little bit more conservative, generally. <laughs> that's that's a good point. That's very true. Um, so, what does um does does Bohr fit into there as well too? Because Bohr's the one that originally sort of came up with the the electron and the energy level and stuff like that. I mean, I, I may be mischaracterizing this, but he's sort of indicated that there's the electron has this much energy when it's at this distance 
and that that energy is conserved. Yeah. So, um, and yeah, you're really testing my knowledge. Uh, and I've I've told these stories enough time. I really should know it. But um, yeah, Niels Bohr was a uh, he was like there was a whole group of maybe a dozen early physicists, uh, early physicists, early 20th century physicists who were working on this. Niels Bohr was an instrumental character. Um, he came up with this uh, with uh, the the Bohr model of the atom, which is mm -hmm. basically what's taught in high schools. Um, that was him. Uh, the The reason why he came up with it was as an was as an explanation to the following problem. Um, it was well known. Uh, so, so the atom wasn't known about in uh, Maxwell's time in the late 1800s. But the atom was discovered by Rutherford. I want to say it, Rutherford and his colleagues. I want to say in the like 1912, maybe I could be getting the year wrong. Yeah, we we um, knew the electron existed, but we didn't know right. the proton existed until right. I think it was 1911 or 1912. Yeah, then, something. Right, right. And then the neutron and so, way but the, later. But if you have a proton and neutron, and then you have the electron orbiting it, they, they had established that. The trouble mm -hmm. is, classically, uh, whenever a charged particle accelerates, it gives off electromagnetic radiation. And what we know from classical mechanics is that when you go in a circle, your velocity is changing. It's changing direction as it goes around. And so the electron should have been giving off radiation if it was just orbiting classically, uh, like how oh. a, planet orb a planet orbits the sun. Hmm. And uh, there were some calculations. I don't remember who did this, but there were some calculations that were done. It basically said, look, hydrogen, the simplest atom, should be unstable. The electron should fall into the center in like a fraction of a second because it just gives off energy and then it spirals yeah. in. Yeah, it loses energy and gets, yeah. Right. So so Bohr came up with the solution. He said, look, it can't give off energy if it can't uh, if it can't change its orbits. Huh. That's uh that's really simple. I never heard it framed that way that it I I'd heard that it what is keeping it from spiraling into the nucleus? Well, it just simply must occupy one of there's like seven or eight energy levels or whatever or whatever. But I guess I never heard that it, it gives off radiation as it moves because it because its velocity changes. That's interesting. Yep. I've never heard that before. Okay, and, so I uh, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, funny story. You might you might say, well, isn't that a problem for Earth? Earth is going around the sun. Won't the Earth spiral in? And it would in like two trillion years. Gravity is really <laughs> oh. weak. <laughs> <laughs> two trillion. Well, yeah, the, the sun won't exist uh, yeah. far, far long before we get to that point. Yeah. Um, okay, so I think... People that kind of know what quantum mechanics is, people that are just like barely initiated with it, like I kind of have to know about it because I sort of have to teach it in some aspects, but I'm, I'm definitely not an expert. So we would summarize it. We would say it's, or at least part of it, is the idea that something can be in more than one place at once unless or until you look at it. So that's like part of quantum mechanics, right? So... Can you, that's probably terrible. So can you explain quantum mechanics in an intuitive way? Yeah, so first I have to say, um, the way that you learn quantum mechanics when you're, uh, say, a grad student or whatever, you learn it in a very standard way. And it's basically the same way it's been taught for probably almost 100 years now, maybe maybe 80 years. Um, so there's a particular interpretation. I, I imagine we're probably going to be talking about that at some point later on down the line that they teach because it's easy to teach and it, it's... it's uh, it's fine, but uh, there's a, and it's, most of what I'm going to say about quantum mechanics, at least as far as philosophical implications and so on, comes directly from Sean Carroll. So I don't know if I can do a book plug here, but Sean Carroll wrote a great book called Something Deeply Hidden. Uh, man is brilliant. He, I learned general relativity from his textbook. Uh, he's now a philosopher of physics. Anyway, writes a great book that talks a lot about quantum mechanics. That's all to say, um, there, 
the I, I cringed a little bit when you said what you said oh, because I saw it. <laughs> not not because not because it was wrong per se, but because it implied a specific interpretation. Oh, okay, um, cool. So so uh, the, the idea is as follows. Experimentally, what happens is that let's say you have an electron. Uh, it's um, just doing its thing, sitting in a box. And, you know, the way that you might try to figure out where it is, is you just, sh you just bathe the, uh, the box with light. And electrons, being charged particles, they can interact with light, they can absorb photons, release photons, and so on. They can, photons can bounce off of them. Um, you bathe it in light, and then you wait till, you, wait till one of those photons, one of those light particles, kind of bounces off at the wrong angle. And then you go, aha, the electron's there. Now, what you find, if you do this experiment over and over again, is that even if you just put the electron in one place and let it go and just don't even touch it, it'll be in different places all the time. Um, or, alternatively, we could think of it perhaps, uh, it's, it's a little bit trickier if we don't think of position, but there's this notion called quantum spin. You can just think of it as the electron spins it clockwise, the electron spins counterclockwise. Um, and if you just plop down an electron in your lab and you measure its spin, whether it's counterclockwise or clockwise, depending on how you set it up, it seems to be random. You'll either get, you'll get clockwise half the time, counterclockwise half the time, maybe it'll be 70, 30. Maybe you'll get counterclockwise every time because you set it up in a particular way. But the point is, is that there seemed to be something fundamentally probabilistic about quantum mechanics, which was completely foreign considering the world of classical mechanics is, you know, you, you, uh, you, give an input, turn or crank, you get an output, it's exact to your degree of accuracy. That was very strange. And so the best explanation that could be come up with was that, uh, and we have Schrodinger to thank for this, is that we shouldn't think of electrons as just a tiny billiard ball, or photons as a tiny billiard ball just floating in space. We should think of them as a wave, um, a wave that obeys a wave equation, which has a name now, the Schrodinger equation. Um, and that wave will tell you roughly, where the electron is likely to be. But it won't tell you where it is. The wave, the wave was completely deterministic. You can always predict the shape of the wave at any time. But when you go to measure it, something happens. And somehow, we'll we can talk about the causes later, it picks where the wave is strongest. It picks randomly from where the wave is strongest. It might be that you know, it has three peaks. And so it'll pick evenly between one of the three peaks for where the electron is. So th th it's just this very, very strange notion, very, very deep departure from classical physics where things don't behave deterministically anymore, at least seemingly. And so quantum mechanics is the answer to that. It's, it's how we understand reality. And as far as anybody can tell, it is what reality actually does. Cool. So when I, when I teach and keep in mind, I have to try to explain this to like 15 year olds. So totally when, when I try to explain this, I, I typically like show them an orbital and I'll say something to the effect of, we can't know where in the orbital the electron is. It, it could be anywhere. I don't, I, in the past, I've perhaps said, you can think of it like it is everywhere in there. It's in a, like a, a super position or whatever until we look and then it manifests itself in one place. But once we do that, then we can't know where it's going to go next. Cause you can't know two things at the same time is like the basic problem. Yeah. So you're touching on the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, mm -hmm. which seems very spooky. And so for those who are listening and don't know what it is, the Heisenberg uncertainty principle says 
Um, if you measure the position of something, you can't know its speed. If you measure its speed, you can't know its position. There is a fundamental uncertainty there. You could measure its position with some fuzziness, and then you can measure the momentum with some fuzziness, but you can never get exact precision for both. Um, and it, it, is, it is true. And it seems spooky. It's like, well, maybe we just need better devices, right? But it only seems that way in the intuition that we've developed, you know, evolving on the plains of the Serengeti or wherever we did, right? We, we picture things as solid objects that have places and speeds. But if you throw away that notion, if you think of them as, look, an electron's just a wave, well, this makes total sense for waves. A wave is, if, if a wave is just one wavelength, it'll be spread out. Or you can add up a whole bunch of wavelengths together, and then you can have it be localized. But when you do that, now your wavelength, which is kind of related to your speed, your momentum, now your momentum's not well determined, but your position is. So there's just it's just an, a, a straight duality. And for anybody who's mathematically inclined, this is a Fourier transform. That's all uh, that it is. Okay, cool. Um, I'm going to skip that one and do that question later. But um, so my next thing is, you know, it's it's not just you know, average people like me who struggle with quantum mechanics. Einstein, we talked about this earlier, he famously hated some of the implications of it. So you kind of already touched on this. Why do you think that is? And uh, I assume he wasn't alone. Were there other, I, but I don't know, like any big names that were like, no, 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 entanglement that I I won't believe it. Or the the, the wave, the way it's uh, just indeterminable. I, I can't, I can't believe that. Were there other people that were in that camp? Yeah, there were a few, and they came later. Uh, Einstein wasn't stupid, and he wasn't being conservative. Uh, well, I mean, he was being conservative in his own way. The trouble is, is the prevailing understanding of quantum mechanics at the time was the so-called Copenhagen interpretation. It's And it's the one that's still taught in school, by the way, uh, which is basically this, this idea that you have your wave function. This is the wave that describes your particle. And when something observes it, whatever that might mean, uh, the wave function collapses, and it just picks a place, and all of the, everything else goes away. And furthermore, so that, that's something to keep in the back of your head, already problematic for Einstein. But furthermore, this, this, uh, this property of collapse applies to entangled particles. Now, entangled particles are just systems, are, are just particles that are really shouldn't be thought of as separate things to begin with. They're, they're fundamentally unseparable. You can separate them spatially, but the, the way that we describe them mathematically is with one linked thing. And so the idea is, is that if you observe one of them, it'll collapse the wave function of both of them. And Einstein had a problem with that because Einstein being famous for his special and general relativity, he, he understood this to mean, perhaps in a justified way, that this meant that something was breaking the light speed barrier. Yeah. He called this spooky action at a distance, that something could happen instantly. And he had a problem with that. And for what it's worth, I also have a problem with that. <laughs> yeah, the, well, Copenhagen's not the interpretation you prefer, right? No. <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll, we'll get to that uh, really, really soon here. Um, was there anything else you wanted to add about that? Oh, um, yeah. So, so Einstein was in the minority in the first... Einstein died in 55, I think. Yep. He was in the minority in the first half of the 20th century. And, I mean, in some sense, he still is. The Copenhagen interpretation, if not the majority, is the plurality of physicists. But... Um, in, uh, by the time the late 50s, early 60s, and 70s rolled around, there was this growing movement of people who were like, yeah, you know, maybe we don't need this Copenhagen business. So, yeah, it's 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 just to say that, uh, as always, he was before his time. <laughs> yeah, we with with basically everything, even the stuff he was wrong about, like the the 
cosmological constant when we figured yep. out that there's dark energy. I was like, well, you were right. <laughs> Even when he was wrong. Um, we talked about Sean Carroll, or you mentioned him a bit ago. Uh, so he did a he did a four hour solo podcast a couple days ago. I haven't called, seen it yet. Called the Crisis in Physics. I listened to about an hour of it, I think. Um, and in it, he says that uh, no, quantum mechanics and special relativity actually do work together. And I've never heard that before. So. Um, Maybe starting with a, a simple explanation of what special relativity is, can you give a, a fairly simple explanation of how they actually do work together? I'll do my best and make no promises. Right, yes. so special relativity, uh, you may have heard that um, you can't go faster than the speed of light. You have, this, you have special relativity to thank for that. The idea is uh, Einstein started with this very simple postulate, and there's history behind this, but for the most part, this is fine, that regardless of how fast you're going the speed of light always or uh, like a light beam always looks like it's going the speed of light whether if, if you're on a train and you turn on a flashlight from your perspective the light goes at the speed of light but from someone on the ground's perspective too the light also looks like it's going the speed of light very counterintuitive i have had plenty of arguments with people with flat earthers actually hate this usually uh, i've had plenty of arguments with people who think that this is nonsense Unfortunately, it is arguably one of our best tested scientific theories that we have access to. Um, and so, so Einstein was right in thinking that there's something sketchy here. If, if, if something seems appears to violate special relativity, you have a problem. General relativity is a little bit more wishy-washy, but special relativity is pretty good. So what Sean Carroll was referring to is um, quantum field theory. So we have quantum mechanics. This is like electrons just kind of like moving slowly, doing their wiggle wobble things. Um, nothing fancy is happening. There's no, you don't have antimatter. You, you just have like a particle, like an electron hanging out near a nucleus, right? Um, but we know that things behave differently when things start to be moved near the speed of light. Uh, and for example, in a gold atom, the reason why a gold atom is gold is because the electrons that are close to the inside of its uh, Maybe I'm wrong about this. This is this is a this is folklore I've heard. So if somebody fact check me on this, um, a gold atom is gold because of relativistic effects. Namely, the electrons are like their orbit is changed in such a way because they're moving so quickly. Um, so I've, I've heard that's why mercury is a liquid because there could are be, relativistic that could be as well. effects. Yeah, in, in heavy in heavy atoms, that tends to be the case because they're they have a lot more. Um, protons and so their their pull on the electron on their inner electrons is very very tight and so tight orbits means very very fast motion from a classical perspective right so clearly um we can't just treat uh electrons using classical mechanics or uh non-relativistic mechanics because different things happen and in fact uh Dirac Dirac however you pronounce his name um he was trying to come up with a way to describe relativistic particles because one thing that was known is that you can take an electron and you can accelerate it to near the speed of light this is known in the early 19 uh, early 1900s maybe by the 1930s i guess um you can accelerate it to near the speed of light and then it doesn't it doesn't work so well um so dirac comes up with this equation called now now called the dirac equation uh which is sort of the first merging of special relativity and quantum mechanics uh and one of the things that he observed or not observed, he uh, stumbled upon, was something that he called the Dirac C. We know that, we no now know that better as antimatter. 
His oh. critic, his uh, his equation that was just trying to describe an electron at uh, relativistic speeds predicted antimatter. Um, this notion of uh, of negative energy particles. They're not actually negative energy. It's just they behave as if they're moving backwards in time, which corresponds to negative energy. Don't worry about any of that. It's technical details. Um, but but and so 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 okay. So there's this business of antimatter. Great. Um, so positrons. That's what they called them. The anti-electron. And then. Um, Particle physics started happening in the 50s, um, and there was there was some quantum field theory that was developing, but it was not super well developed. Quantum field theory, by the way, being the way that we that that they described particles that are moving in a relativistic way, um, and so th the idea is that instead of talking about an electron as a single thing, and then a, another electron as a separate single thing, instead you can kind of think of this as uh, you have like a an electron field, not an electric field, an electron field. And the reason why you would want to think of it that way is because you, you can think of an electron as being a bump in one direction on that field. Think of like a, like a sheet of paper with a bump on it. And a positron being a negative bump. And now they can combine and cancel out. And, yeah. And or, or if, you, if you dump enough energy into it, you can make new bumps pop up. So, so, in, so now you have a way of talking about collections of particles. And you don't have to worry about a single particle or a two particle or whatever. The problem with the Schrodinger equation is that it can't handle changing the number of particles. And it turned out you needed this energy mass equivalence in order to be able to talk about this at all. So you have special relativity on one hand, talking about how you can convert energy in, or energy into mass. And you have uh, quantum mechanics on the other hand, describing these fundamentally wavy and wavy particles in big air quotes. And you end up with quantum field theory, which uh, is kind of the, uh, the workhorse of your average well, of your average particle physicist anyway, and it has been since the 50s, really. Uh, and this is not um, like this is not up for debate. Uh, the uh, one of the theory, one of one of the quantum field theories that is arguably the most well known is the one that you'll first learn in a graduate level course on quantum field theory is quantum electrodynamics. Richard Feynman and one other guy whose name I can't remember is responsible for it. This is what he won his Nobel Prize for. Um, and it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the diagrams and the rest of the whole theory. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, this is the most accurate theory humans have ever come up with. It is accurate oh, wow. to one part. It, it, the, the predictions made by quantum electrodynamics agree with experiment to, with, uh, to about one part in a trillion. Uh, 12 decimal places, they agree. Um, which is, it's remarkable. And so, so there really is no problem with special relativity or quantum mechanics. They play great together. And uh, in fact, it just shows how strong special relativity is. It doesn't just describe a rocket ship going near the speed of light or, you know, uh, what happens to a twin when they're uh, when they go far away and then come back. It also describes how particle colliders work. And the fact that we're able to make such spectacular predictions says that there's we're definitely doing something right. Hmm. Yeah, I had heard I actually have this later on that quantum mechanics is the most successful and accurate scientific theory of all time but you're saying it's specifically this this thing that uh Feynman yeah. came up with yeah Quant it's the easiest electrodynamics that's that's what yeah it it's the theory of uh of how electric charge interacts with uh the electromagnetic field light oh awesome that's so cool okay. yeah it's the simplest of the quantum field theory so it makes sense that we would be able to test it most accurately yeah simple <laughs> It is. It is. It's, I have some videos on it where I actually do the calculations. That's cool. Um, so 
there are uh, now. We're, now we're really going to get into it. So there are different interpretations for the collapse of the wave function. The way I understand it is basically the the difference between how some physicists think about quantum mechanics versus others is just down to the collapse of the wave function. Is that pretty much? If only it was that simple. If only it were that simple. <laughs> well, maybe we can pretend it's that simple for right now, and you you can get into more of it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And I'll, I'll finish the rest of it. So um, what I want to know is, I, I hear that and I just go, okay. So what implications do these different interpretations have for the real world? And is there anything we can see uh, every day that we would never see the same way if we solved this problem? Okay, so it depends on whether or not the person who's thinking about the real world actually cares about... Um, what the universe is um well, so so if, if if you're just a guy just doing your thing going to work taking care of your kids playing some i don't know what kids Fortnite, right yeah uh it's not going there's going to be no technological developments depending on which regardless of which interpretation it's being correct that's that's not going to happen um the to almost to it, it's it's been said in the past and i've being slowly convinced that this is not actually the case, but it's been said in the past that the reason they're called interpretations and not theories is because they make identical predictions. Um, now, this is arguable. Uh, Sean Carroll's made a case that these actually are testable theories, that you can differentiate them experimentally. Um, it's just never been done because you need very, basically you need very, very rapid and very, very sensitive experiments to do so. So, um, but I mean, so the idea is, is that there's, yeah, so, so the way to think about this is that there's a, there's a wave function. Every, every interpretation of quantum mechanics agrees that there's a wave function because the Schrodinger equation is remarkably accurate, makes great predictions. So there, there has to be a wave function. And then there's this thing called the Born rule. This was come up with by a guy named Max Born, I want to say, again, an early, one of those early 20th century quantum physicists, right? Um, he won a Nobel Prize for this, actually. Uh, they all, there were so many Nobel Prizes for, like, low-hanging fruit back then. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, so the Born rule basically says, it basically tells you how to convert the wave function, which is just a formula. It's like, you know, x squared or something like that. It'll, it'll, it'll be some formula that tells you, it'll, it'll spit out a number when you input a position or something like that. It tells you how to convert that formula into a probability of measuring something right and like that's super important right because if 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 this wave function is completely inaccessible if you have no way to tell what if you have no way to connect the wave function to reality well then it's it's not a physical theory at all so the born rule is super super important and the real question is where does that thing come from why is it that the born rule works why does it why does it, it it's it like and the details aren't super important but there it's it's a it's a very simple like you just square the wave function and that gives you the formula to calculate probabilities um why is it that that works at all now the copenhagen interpretation says something along the lines of look uh, the early copenhagen interpretation was look when you measure it whatever that means um the wave function spontaneously collapses and it chooses to collapse at a location determined probabilistically by the born rule so if if you know if your wave function had 
uh, was 75% in one place and 25% at the other place. Three of the four times, it will collapse and end up at, at, the, at the 75% place. And one of the four times, it'll collapse and end up at the other place. And this is just a spontaneous collapse that happens upon measurement. That's the Copenhagen interpretation. It's, been, it's a little bit more sophisticated now. We can talk about things like decoherence, but it's not super, it doesn't really matter. The idea is still the same. Then there's the many worlds interpretation, second most popular interpretation. Um, this is the one that I think is most correct. It's probably most accurately called the Everett interpretation. Um, if only because Everett was the guy who came up with it and many worlds implies like Marvel stuff. <laughs> um, so, uh, but, but the idea is that when you go to make a measurement, um, the wave function doesn't do anything. You just entangle yourself with it. And so oh. let's take the example where there's one quarter of the wave function is in one state, three quarters is in the other state. One quarter of you will entangle with the one quarter state three quarters of you will entangle with the three quarter state and you just won't be able to talk to each other again. So it's almost as if the universe splits. It doesn't like it's still occupying the same space. It's still the same. It's still just one universe. But in some sense, the three quarters you thinks that they've measured three quarters, the one quarters you thinks that they've measured one quarter. Do you think this is where people were? I'm going to ask about this later, but is this, this sounds like the source of people saying like, consciousness causes the wave function to collapse or something like that so so the the thing is is the copenhagen interpretation is what is what gets people on that because oh, it's the okay. copenhagen interpretation where some sort of measurement causes collapse in the in the many worlds interpretation there's sure. no collapse at all collapse just doesn't occur oh, okay you just entangle with it in different ways yeah i was thinking and, like becoming one with it is sort of the connection there but now now i see what you what so you so what's happening is that is that um so entanglement is just like we talked about it briefly but entanglement is just this phenomenon that basically says your wave function mixes with its and that makes kind of sense right like like uh you can you can imagine doing a measurement as like reaching out and like touching it and so like you're going to interact with it it will affect you you'll affect it and so they're gonna they're gonna get mixed up together and so when you reach out and measure it you're going to measure it in both places and you have like you're made of electrons and protons and neutrons so you're you, you have a wave function and so your wave function will interact with both pieces and it'll split this is a process called decoherence um and so uh, that's that's roughly the everett or the many worlds interpretation in a nutshell there are a few others um there's an interpretation called uh there are interpretations called dynamic collapse interpretations which say look um the wave function collapse doesn't have any like wave function collapse is real but it doesn't have anything to do with observation it just happens to an electron once every 300 million years and if you have a lot of electrons then it'll happen pretty frequently for large objects and once one electron collapses they all do so that that gets you away of basically having very very rapid collapse when when a macroscopic object observes something and then so there's 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 other ones um the other, the one other one that I think is relevant is um, pilot wave theory, or also known as uh, Bohmian mechanics or de Broglie-Bohm mechanics or whatever. This is actually a completely deterministic um, theory of quantum mechanics, which basically says you have the wave function doing its thing, evolves under the Schrodinger equation, but then you have an actual particle that kind of just rides the wave function like a barrel, and we don't have access to where the where the particle is. The wave function just tells us where the particle is likely to be. But it, it, it evolves completely deterministically. There's nothing random. We only measure the particle, but we just didn't know where, it, we, we just can't figure out where it is because we don't have access to that information. But it's completely deterministic. It's called a hidden variables theory. Um, so, 
So those are like kind of the four big ones, I would say. There's a few, there's another one called uh, quantum Bayesianism, but I don't understand that well enough to talk about it on a podcast. So sure. So is it? Would you say that uh, if we take like the two main, which are the Copenhagen and the the Everett? Is do people fall into favor with one versus the other just simply based on like philosophical or metaphysical uh, preferences to them, or is one experimentally more verified than the other, or is it a mixture of both? Or what do you so, think? So the Everett and Copenhagen interpretations, as far as I know, um, have never been experimentally distinguished. Um. In a sense, it's like an aesthetic thing, right? So on the one hand, with the Copenhagen interpretation, you have one universe. You, When you make a measurement, there's only one outcome. Kind of matches with, with what we would expect. But you, in order to get that, you have this extra baggage of this thing that was just made up, this idea of wave function collapse. There's no formula for wave function collapse. It's just the thing that somebody said happened, and it gives you the right answer. The Everett interpretation is basically what happens if you take quantum mechanics and throw away everything that we don't have evidence for. All you're left with is just a wave function. You know, everything has a wave function. Electrons, we're all, we're all made of electrons, protons, and neutrons. Everything's quantum. And then you have the Schrodinger equation. That's it. Now, the consequence of this is that you is that when you make a measurement, you split. That that's just a that's just a direct consequence of pure quantum mechanics in its most raw form. So in some sense, I mean, at least for me, aesthetically, maybe not aesthetically, um, metaphysically, I take the position that, look, we shouldn't be making assumptions just because it feels better to our brains. I mean, it, it does give some weird sense, like it does play with the notion of identity a lot, because what does it mean if you split? Like, are you, is it, are they both you or which, which one is you? It, it becomes like, there's some real philosophical problems there. But that's what, like, I mean, that's where the science, to me anyway, that's what the science says. We just have to reconcile with what it means. Speaking of the interpretations between, like, Copenhagen and Everett, it kind of seems like you're saying, um, I'll draw a comparison to evolution. We, we had the theory of evolution before we knew how organisms actually acquire those inherited differences. Um, and so once we learned that, once we had genetics, genetics didn't like disprove evolution in any way. It confirmed it. But what it did do was it opened up a brand new paradigm um, of, of sciences. And so it sort of sounds like you're saying if we ever do solve this problem of the wave function, you know, it won't create a new technology or anything like that. So are you kind of saying that there, you don't think it would open up a brand new paradigm of, of science or physics? Um, I mean, it's hard to predict, right? But I, I, I honestly don't think so, because there's nothing that we can do to manipulate these things. Like, like say many, say many worlds ends up being true. That's what mm -hmm. I'm rooting for. You can't manipulate the many worlds. You can't talk to each other. So what's there to do? And let's say, Co and now actually, if the Copenhagen interpretation works out to be true, that could have some serious implications. Like, um, like, especially, like, the observer effect is generally well regarded as just not a thing. But if it turns out that actually the whole solipsism thing, like, uh, some sort of consciousness is required, like, there's some, like, ethereal, clearly I'm a materialist, right? <laughs> some sort of ethereal consciousness required to collapse a wave function. Now you can have, like, telepathy. 
you could have like like telekinesis and stuff where you just have like people's consciousness do it so so that would have that that i mean it probably wouldn't it probably would just be some like quasi statistical thing happening but like depending on how the copenhagen interpretation worked out it could have huge ramifications but i also think that the copenhagen interpretation is wrong so i'm not i'm not betting my horse on that one so it sounds like if copenhagen is true then then uh the x-men could theoretically exist <laughs> whereas if everett is true then uh that will allow me to believe that the broncos win the super bowl every single year just not necessarily in this universe it's not even that honestly it would be better if the copenhagen interpretation were real because then you could have like quantum manifestation you could like you know all, all that lovely stuff right but like if the many worlds have like the thing is is the the branching only happens for quantum mechanical measurements mm. so like classical things just don't branch the wave function darn <laughs> so but but what but but even worse than that the many worlds interpretation give has some serious ramifications for what for like what personal identity is like it could drive some people into like um what are they called uh, uh existential crises yeah <laughs> so so i mean i mean it might it in my opinion, it's probably the true one, but it's not the fun one. So the next question then is, how does quantum mechanics f affect my day-to-day -day life? Is what do I depend on it for or an understanding of it for? Yeah, so, I mean, the obvious answer here is everything that's electronic. Yeah, right? like the transistor. Um, yeah, the transistor. And so... And funnily enough, the guy who invented the transistor is the only guy to have won two Nobel Prizes in the same field. Uh, he won two Nobel Prizes in physics, one for the transistor and one for, I want to say, superconductors. Big deal guy. He's not known about nearly as well as he should have been. Anyway, um, but uh, I should have fact-checked that before I said that. It doesn't matter. People will get mad at me in the comments <laughs> if I said something wrong. Um, so, uh, yeah, the transistor is a big deal. I don't actually know if the understanding of quantum mechanics was necessary because like people were playing with electronics i imagine it probably was if only because the uh like the the way to come up with how these things work probably sped up the process of developing the electronics much 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 more quickly i mean it's one of those things where, where like you could probably have just figured out by trial and error without actually knowing the underlying business but that would be that that, that would be my first guess as to the thing that impacts you the most but uh, perhaps less well-known, like radiation therapy. All of radiation is quantum mechanics. Um, if you know what a PET scan is, it's often used for detecting cancers and like thyroid thyroid cancer and so on. Mm -hmm. That's positron emission tomography. That's antimatter. Really? Like it's, yeah, it's antimatter. They shoot oh, yeah, you with antimatter. Because it's, po it's positron. I never, yeah. I never thought of I knew it stood for positron. But I never, I never thought yeah. about that. So, so not only is it quantum mechanics, it's quantum field theory, and which involves special relativity and quantum mechanics. Huh. Uh, so, I like, like I never thought about. I never realized that it was right there. <laughs> superconductors too. Um, so CT scans, they have superconducting magnets in them. Um, Would an MRI with the because it it rearranges the. I don't really. Know I'm sorry. No, no, M no. MRIs are the magnetic ones, right? Yeah. Uh, there's some medical scanner that's really, really loud and it spins really, really yeah, fast. Yeah, that's the MRI. Yeah. Okay, then yeah, that's that's the one that that has the superconducting magnets in it. Oh, right. Um, so uh, yeah, so so anything with superconductors, anything with um, radiation, anything with transistors, uh, like really our entire modern world, like it's. I mean, it, 
you know, Marie Curie knew about radiation. Well, I don't know. I guess around the time quantum mechanics was being developed. But, um, like, you don't have to know how it works to use it, but it certainly makes inventions more efficient. Like, modern, like, smoke alarms use radiation. Yeah, americium. Yeah. 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 So that I, it, that I did know. Like, like basically everything. That's good. Yeah, so what you said there is you don't have to... You don't have to understand it to like uh, to to see it, but if you want to invent technologies that take advantage of it, I would say, yeah, you do have to understand it. And I, I have no idea how many lives the MRI has saved, oh, but yeah. it, it can't be less than hundreds of thousands. It it just can't be. The other thing that's quite interesting is we're actually you you may have heard of Moore's law. I imagine you have. Yeah. With transistors. Yeah. So uh, it's this thing where transistor density just increases exponentially and the transistor gets smaller and smaller which is great except when they get too small you run into quantum mechanical issues yeah now which is a problem that, atoms yeah, yeah yeah it's a problem that you have to overcome now and you know if you didn't know anything about quantum mechanics you'd be like why aren't my transistors working when i make them smaller so <laughs> that's yeah that's a good point that's that's not a problem a lot of people have but no but it is a problem for like intel and hp and dell and all these computer or i guess intel makes chips i guess hp and dell don't yeah. Huh. Cool. So, yeah, I, I knew about some of those, but I thought it would be interesting to to let because this again, this is sort of for average people. Again, the title is quantum mechanics. Who cares? Or so I haven't decided what the title is yet. It's either going to be so what or who cares? But yeah, it, sure. does, it does affect our day to day lives for sure. I have more. Go ahead. So um, it's the reason why the sky's blue. Oh, Rayleigh scattering is yep. quantum mechanics. Well, it's classical, but it requires treating light as photons. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, because it splits the the white light. Yeah, into... yeah. So, so I mean, like a lot of these things, a lot of like the scattering stuff is quantum mechanics. Um, yeah. So, so it's there's a lot that that is. I mean, like it doesn't matter why the sky is blue, but hey, it's interesting to know anyway there are some butterflies that have blue i think it's blue morphos i'm not sure but they have blue wings but if you get them wet they're green and it's because they oh. have scales that interlock almost like a tree lattice it's very weird and the light goes in and i don't remember the specifics of how it works but the only light that can get out is yep. blue so they're not blue because of the conventional sense of absorbing all wavelengths and then reflecting Technically, pretty much everything reflects all wavelengths. It's just whatever's dominant uh, is the color you see. But that it actually, I don't know, the light breaks apart or only the blue bounces directly back to, I can't remember the exact mechanics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's, a, non, uh, it's a non-pigmented uh, color. Uh, th there are other things too that are like, like uh, perhaps more technical, but like um, it is now being more and more understood that, like for example, chlorophyll uses quantum mechanics, quantum tunneling, um, oh. in order to in order to that's, like be as efficient as it is. And there, up. there's like some uh, like some protein folding stuff or something. I don't know. I don't I don't know a whole, lot, a whole lot about biology, but I know that there's like some some like biological phenomena that happen that actually require quantum mechanics to explain. Huh. That didn't know that. That's awesome. Um, so. Is the universe fundamentally quantum? Is it fundamentally classical? Or does it depend on what question you're trying to answer? Or can it um, be both? It seems like it can't be both. It has to be one or the other. But maybe, I don't know. 
So fundamentally, I mean, who knows, right? Um, but but it seems like fundamentally it's quantum it's quantum mechanical. There's this thing called the uh, Bell's theorem, John Bell in the 1960s, I want to say 1965 maybe. Um, wrote down wrote a paper um, about uh, about basically, and actually he he was very uh, very fond of the pilot wave theory. In fact, he wrote it because he wanted to try to prove this. Um, he wrote a paper where he described basically a way of testing whether the universe is uh, fundamentally quantum or not. Uh, this is the famous Bell inequality. Uh, and if uh, anybody paid attention to the science news in the last year and a half or so, there was a big Nobel Prize awarded in 2022 to three physicists, all of whom did work testing the Bell inequality. And it seems pretty conclusive. Basically, there's been a lot of testing done since the 60s, really, to try to kind of close loopholes in these experiments that test this thing. But the general idea is that, yes, our universe is fundamentally quantum, uh, meaning that it's fundamentally governed by something like the Schrodinger equation, if not the Schrodinger equation itself. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't use classical mechanics. New Newton's uh, Newtonian mechanics got us to the moon. Uh, general relativity makes astoundingly accurate predictions for the motions of stars. But the point is, is that these are all kind of zoomed out approximations of what's truly happening at a fundamental level. Cool. Yeah, I mean, the it, it seems like, well, how do I want to say this? The world we experience, like, is is this macroscopic thing that, that doesn't behave quantumly. You know, it, it behaves classically. But, you know, if if matter fundamentally is composed of, you know, the things that make up the standard model, well, they're all quantum. I mean, they, they, they obey a, a quantum system. So I would, yeah, that I was going to guess that you were going to say it's probably fundamentally quantum. And the, the, the classical nature of matter is just an, an emergent property, I guess. It sort of comes out of it. There's, I can't remember what you call that. Um, Decoherence? No, there's a, I actually just learned about this today. It's, um, let me open it up. I have it right here. Philosophers call these like category errors, but physicists call it uh, decoupling scales. Yeah. Okay. Like the, the details at small scales don't matter on large scales, basically. Yeah. So it seems like maybe classical mechanics is is that, I guess. The idea is that like, look, your electron has a 99.999% probability of winding up in the vicinity of an atom, right? Yeah. And your electron's very, very small. So 99.9 whatever percent of the time your electrons just going to be in the atom and you're made of a trillion 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 atoms or something like that so uh maybe that that might be too many trillions <laughs> um so so like it doesn't matter where the electron is around your atom it just matters that it's there right and it'll still do everything that you need it to and it'll behave effectively classically from your perspective now there's this notion of decoherence um when you have a large number of quantum quantum systems all interacting which is what microscopic things are they split. They, they, they do the wave function splitting thing. Um, and so when that happens, you end up with a decohered state, which are basically just a bunch of different copies of, uh, um, of uh, effectively classical systems. They, they, don't, they don't interfere with each other anymore. And so you just end up with kind of like classically behaving things. Okay. Because um, we were talking about Nobel Prizes, I, I looked into that physics one. Yeah, John Bardeen, it was superconductors and the transistor. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember what his name is, but I'm pretty sure it was last year. Uh, the guy that won the Nobel Prize in chemistry, 
he had won a Nobel Prize in chemistry before. So now oh, there's okay. I guess my uh, knowledge is outdated. Yeah, I think there are only six people. It's it's either five or six people that have won two Nobel prizes, and he's uh, Bardeen's still the only person to win it in two of them in physics. But then the other guy, yeah, there are six now because this website's outdated. He won. He's won two in chemistry now. So okay, good for him. Um, so my next one about the uh, uh, quantum mechanics. So what? section is um what is quantum tunneling okay so i have this thing in my hand for those who are just listening it's like a one of these grip strengthening things i've been playing with it as a fidget toy there's a wall right here you can't see it but there is a wall now i'm not a strong guy uh if i threw this at the wall it would probably bounce off and the reason why is because there's electrons in this thing and electrons in the wall, and they repel each other. So it would take a certain amount of energy to make them push past each other because there's a repulsive force. But wave functions describe electrons, not billiard balls. So we really shouldn't be thinking of these as just billiard balls pushing off against each other. We should think of them as wave functions overlapping. And the idea is that when you have a repulsive force between two things, the wave functions overlap less. The wave functions are kind of pushed out but wave functions go on forever, always, in all directions, uh, with very few exceptions. So the idea is, and, and remember, the wave function tells you how likely it is to find something somewhere. So the idea is, is well, this thing, it has a wave function that's on it. Like, part of its wave function is already on the other side of the wall. And so it has a very small chance of just being measured to be over there without ever having to pass through the wall to begin with. Which is basically teleportation. Yeah. Um, it, it's, so, but, but you can think of it, I mean, it, the word tunneling is indicative here. You can think of a ball trying to roll over a hill. The ball would need a certain amount of energy to get up over the hill, even if the other side was lower energy. But it, or maybe you just attach a little drill bit to it and it just tunneled through the hill. Now it doesn't need as much energy. It can just go through for free. It's just very rare that that happens. That's all, that's all quantum tunneling is. It's just this phenomenon where things kind of slide past energy barriers because their wave function kind of leaks through. Yeah. And we know that this happens. This isn't like yeah. a, a theoretical thing because it, it causes, I don't know if it's transistors or what, but it causes actual problems in computing. And it's, it's actually, not only does it cause problems, it's actually utilized in technology. Um, scanning tunneling scanning tunneling electron microscopes use tunneling to get images of uh individual atoms oh okay basically they have a they have a tungsten tip which which is one atom thick and it has electrons on the end and they chart they put a voltage on it and the thing that they're trying to measure if it gets sufficiently close enough it's not going to touch the thing but if it gets sufficiently close enough like a few atoms away an electron from the thing it's trying to measure might tunnel its way and jump to the tungsten and you can detect a current. I don't. How do people do that? How do people? Magic. It's magic. It's literally <laughs> magic. I mean, well, well, when you do that, you win a Nobel Prize, right? Yeah, yeah. Um. So, is that like how you've seen the IBM's tiniest movie in the world, right? That that's yep. how they did that. I know they used carbon monoxide because it would it would line the molecule yep. up vertically. Uh, I don't know if they use, so there's, so electron microscopy is really complicated. And so there's like scanning tunneling electron micro microscopes. They're scanning electron microscopes. Um, I don't know which one they used. I imagine it's a scanning tunneling though, because those are usually used for like individual atom uh, visualizations, I think. Okay. So 
You know what? I just thought of something where quantum mechanics affects us in the real world. And that's when we're trying to do microscopy or using telescopes because the, the light gets, I can't remember what you call that. The light gets separated. Um, oh, uh, that's not, that's actually a fairly classical effect. Oh, okay. Oh, You're talking about, we're, uh, we're treating um, the light as if it's just a wave. Yeah. Um, oh, okay. it's, uh, spectral aberration or something like that. Yeah, I think that's right. There apparently there are techniques for this. If you've never heard of the YouTube channel uh Journey into the Microcosmos. I love it. It's so good. Did you see when they got their new microscope that has the yep. and I you it just blown showed blown away. A, it looks like stent. 3D. Yeah, it looked like it was made of corduroy, the mm -hmm. the organism and I was like I can't and apparently it just corrects for those Th yep. that that thing i looked into it because i was so blown away by that that i had to know what was going on and i don't really remember very much of it but yeah it oh. yeah it was the yeah i don't i don't either but it's super cool <laughs> yeah yeah it's so awesome anyways so uh now i want to talk about misconceptions so i just kind of have like a list of them and some questions sure. what would you say uh the biggest misconception is i'm gonna my guess is that it's the claim that Atoms are mostly empty space. No, no, the observer effect. Oh, okay. So you think yeah, that's no, I, the the number yeah, one no, thing that people like get wrong or whatever? Well, maybe 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 it's not the most common thing that people get wrong, but it's the thing that's the most devastating when people get it wrong because it can oh. really change the way people think and the way people act. Huh? Nobody's gonna nobody's gonna like I don't know run into traffic when <laughs> if they think that atoms are mostly empty space or something, right? But uh, the observer effect really, like, I'm sure people have seen, like, these manifestation life coaches that are, like, quantum mechanics teaches that you affect reality. Like, that's, it, it's dangerous, and people get swindled out of a lot of money. Okay, so it's it's consequential in that yeah. way. Cool. I was, the, I was thinking of it from just a, you know, I'm doing the videos about facts that aren't true. Yeah. You know, and this seems like the biggest fact that isn't true, that, that people talk about and it's yeah because you can't think about it as how do I want to say this the volume that an atom occupies the nucleus contains way over 99% of the mass but it occupies something like a trillionth of the volume but yep. that doesn't mean the rest of it is empty space um, which doesn't make sense to a lot of us but it's just because the rules the rules are different I guess it is, it is definitely a big misconception. I guess I just don't, I, I think I've made a video on it. People were like, well, that's weird. And then I kind of moved on because it doesn't. So you're probably right that it is a biggest mis misconception. I just think that um, it doesn't really matter, actually. <laughs> sure. I, fair enough. Absolutely fair enough. Um, so the next one I have, uh, we actually just talked about this. An observer is required for the wave function to collapse. Yeah, it's so. Okay, I'm gonna go on a mini rant here. Bear with that's, me. That's um, totally fine. Okay, so the trouble with this claim is that in principle, it's unfalsifiable because you could do as many tests where you're blindfolded and you have a camera set up and then you put the camera in storage for 10 years and then you look at it 10 years later and then you see, aha, it's collapsed. But then somebody who believes that the observer effect is real, that observers are required for collapse, would just say, well, it just never collapsed until you looked at it 10 years later. That's, and so this is Schrodinger's getting, cat. Well, Seems yeah, sort like of, Schrod sort of, yeah. But but the thing is, is 
this is entirely solipsistic. This basically just says if you close your eyes, the world stops existing. <laughs> Which okay. I'm like, like, look, we don't live our lives that way. If you want to believe that, that's fine. But that's not how we do science. Instead, yeah. we can run tests. And in fact, this was done. I've, I've made a video on this. It's, it's, it's like this. It was on a paper uh, that uh, I was pointed to. And um, basically, tests like like they they did an analysis of does consciousness is consciousness actually required for collapse of the wave function they did a double slit setup setup which is this famous thing that people use to kind of test this kind of thing um and they basically said okay first we're gonna have nobody there and or first first we're gonna we're gonna have somebody just like have a camera set up and then just have somebody looking at it okay it collapsed exactly as expected um then we're going to have a person there um in the same room or uh, we're, we're going to have a person there looking at it, but distracted by something else going on. Okay. It's so, so like their consciousness is not perfectly, you know, focused on it. Okay. It's still collapsed. Then we're going to have somebody in the same room, but, uh, you know, looking elsewhere, doing something else. And then after the experiment is concluded, like 10 minutes later, or whatever, go back and check. Oh, it's collapsed. Then we're going to have them not even be in the room, have the experiment happen, go back and look at it, you know, 10 minutes later, or whatever. Oh, it's collapsed. So, it's always collapsed. It has absolutely nothing to do with whether there's a consciousness involved, whether there's a person involved. It's just whether or not you're interacting with it. And the camera's doing that for you. You don't need a person there at all. Yeah. Yeah. So the the next thing I wrote down, I think I think everything you said probably gets to it. Because the next thing I wrote was consciousness affects reality. But like all you need to collapse the wave function is a photon. So yeah. like if or an if, electron. Yeah. Or an if, atom. If, if no living beings existed, wave functions would still collapse. There would still be stars. Yeah. Right. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know it because we wouldn't be a, like, we wouldn't be around. Yeah. Um, but that's just kind of a philosophical thing. And then, yeah, the, the thing you brought up about solipsism, I, I run into the same. People try to make arguments, like they make solipsist arguments as if that that somehow makes a point. But it's true that you can't, there's no solution for solipsism. But solipsism also makes no point. You can't yep. do anything with with the argument. It it allows you to do nothing. So it they think it proves a point that they're trying to make, but it doesn't, nor even could it, like in principle, I guess. Um yeah. one other thing is like um, you know, I don't think I wrote this down, but we think that quantum mechanics is is just light or just electrons. And like same with quantum tunneling, but no entire atoms. And I've I've heard that entire molecules yep. can behave this way. Like so, like a molecule can quantumly tunnel. So um, the biggest example that I've seen, uh, I looked this up a while ago. So the one that I heard about must have been in college, like starting to feel old ten years ago. Um, <laughs> was a was um, uh, fullerenes. Uh, do you know what a fullerene is? I might the name doesn't ring a bell, but I might. It's know a what it C sixty molecule. It's it's like a soccer ball. Oh, it's like atoms. a it's like Buck yeah Buckminster yeah, Fuller. Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. yeah. I know what these are. You can you can do the double slit experiment with those. Oh wow. Um, and I think I vaguely remember reading that somebody did it with a protein, uh, like two thousand two thousand atoms or something like that. Wow. Um, and and I don't, they may have not done the full double slit, but they showed some sort of quantum mechanical interference. And you have to do these under very, very special, like like super controlled circumstances. They have to be like close to absolute zero and all of this stuff. But yeah, this is a thing that you can do. And it just shows we get better and better technology. We're going to eventually have macroscopic things that are quantum mechanical. Wow. 
Wow. Yeah, so I've I think maybe you're the one that told me this, but like I could like I am quantum mechanical. It's just that like how do I say this? Because I'm so large, the odds of of all of my molecules doing something that that an individual atom is observed to do are just so incredibly low. It's like I could yeah. quantumly tunnel through the wall. It's just that the odds of it are just so low because of like how large I am, I guess. Yeah, it's a it's a law of large numbers thing, right? Yeah. Um, if the probability of a single atom tunneling through is 0.1%, let's say, tunneling through the wall. Well, you're made of a, I don't know, uh, let's say a trillion trillion atoms to be honest. That's, that's 10 to the 24. Uh, Avogadro's number is 10 to the 23. 10 to the 24 is close enough, right? So take 0.001 and raise it to the raise it to the trillion trillionth power that'll give you the probability of this happening this sounds like it, uh, sean carroll wrote that paper where he, he calculated what are the odds that a grand piano will just manifest itself in space yeah and it's calcu it's, it's calculable but <laughs> yep it's just very very small okay cool um that actually that was the next question i didn't realize that quantum mechan or uh, misconception that quantum mechanics only affects light or subatomic particles so we're done with that uh next we we touched on this a little bit, but uh, the next misconception is entanglement breaks the speed of light. It's contentious. It's not even well established. Um, so in the in the Copenhagen interpretation, it, it most certainly does. The uh, okay. wave function collapse, it just does. Now, you can't communicate with it. Um, there's something called the no communication theorem. It's a mathematical theorem, very, very strong bounds. You, you just can't, you can't send information with it. But still, something is happening faster than the speed of light. The many worlds interpretation doesn't require it. Um, basically, because collapse never happens in the many worlds interpretation. The idea, the idea being that you have entangled, you have two things entangled. The collapse of one causes the other one to collapse instantaneously, uh, regardless of, se of spatial separation. But if there's no collapse required, then there's no violation of there's there's no uh, speed of light violation. So another misconception is with like a double slit experiment, is it actually accurate to say that the electron does go through both slits or do we not really know if that really is what's happening? Under the many worlds in Copenhagen interpretations, it does go through both slits. Under the pilot wave theory, it doesn't. Oh, cool. Because the electron's just a particle. It just goes through one or the other. But which one it goes through, we just don't know. And it's guided by the wave, which does, you know, do the, all the interference stuff. Have you seen the Veritasium video where he has the silica oil and he makes little beads? It, it's being vibrated by a speaker underneath. And if you make a bead with the oil, that little bead will stay on top. And it actually moves around. You can do a double oh, slit experiment with it. Oh, I have seen that, it. yeah. And it will actually vaguely trace out an interference wasn't, pattern. Wasn't that a video about the pilot wave theory? It, it must have been, yeah. I, I think it was. Yeah, it, it, it must have been. Because what you're describing sounds so much like that. And that's why it reminded me of that. That's cool. Um, all right. Another misconception is uh, people will say, nobody knows how quantum mechanics works. There's a... I want to attribute it to Feynman. It probably wasn't said I, by Feynman. I was just going to say that because yeah. I've heard him say something to the effect of nobody understands or if you if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't. And then there's another yeah. quote that's something like nobody understands it except the math. So 
I think probably in Feynman's time. Feynman did his grad school in like the 20s or 30s. So he was like with the early, um, like the early quantum quantum mechanics people. And they didn't understand what they were talking about. Can I swear? Is that allowed? Should I not? Yeah, I don't give a shit. Okay. Uh, yeah. Th th nobody had any idea what they were talking about or had, had any idea what was happening. But it's not the 50s anymore. Right. <laughs> yeah. um, and it is very counterintuitive. But it's one of those things where... Um, like, so if you were raised in the in the 20s and or 10s, 20s, whatever, of the 1900s, God, I hate saying that, um, <laughs> then, uh, and you're only, you, you like, in the entire time you're in grad school and college, whatever, you're learning about classical physics, and then there's this new thing that you have no understanding of, but it matches the data. Well, I guess you can figure out the math, but you'll have no intuition for it. They start teaching quantum mechanics freshman year of college now. Um, oh, wow. If you're, if, if you're, I mean, I get maybe sophomore year, depending on how, how uh, advanced you are or whatever. But like, I've had, you know, I had uh, three years of quantum mechanics, you have quantum mechanics every semester, basically. Another two years of grad level quantum mechanics. Like, it just seems like how the universe is. It's, it, it's just a matter of where you, where you quote unquote raised on it. And uh, I think modern physicists actually do just understand it. Like, we just, we just have an intuition for it. Um, that uh that you know people in the 50s may not have now it is still very strange it doesn't comport with our intuition but you work with the stuff enough and you get used to it right mm. yeah i when i when i try to talk about what science actually does with my students i tried i make an analogy to i call it the circle of ignorance so let's say we have a question so we draw a circle around that question because we have no idea what the answer is so it could literally be anything what science does and th this is more like of a of a view of science through the lens of Karl Popper, where it actually like uh, disproves certain things. So we make some like test or we do some observations that erase part of the circle. Now, if we, if we only erase half the circle, it there's still this very large lens of, we don't know what the answer specifically is, but we know it doesn't lie somewhere over here. And so I feel like maybe, you know, in the 50, in the 40s and the 50s with quantum mechanics, the angle of that, the circle of ignorance was was large and today it's just been erased more it's it's more narrow there's still so much that is mysterious but maybe that's the uh what it what it really is they didn't know what they what they didn't know or not that's not really the right way to say it they just didn't know well yeah it's kind of they didn't know what they didn't know yet i guess sort of in a way whereas we've we've disproved questions that they didn't have answers to yet i suppose it's so I think that that's partially it, but also just like because it's now an integral part of physics, the pedagogy has just gotten a lot better. So people can develop intuition much, much more effectively. Yeah. Pedagogy, pedagogy. I say pedagogy. It's a, okay. it's a, it's a teacher word. <laughs> Fair. Um, so another misconception, um, the quantum realm means that the universe is indeterminate. If you take the Copenhagen interpretation, it does. Okay. So what I was, uh, think, I, I was thinking oh, that, uh, what I was thinking is it, what it, what it really means is you, well, I guess this is actually really just, um, Heisenberg. So we, we, you can't know two different things at the same time, but that's not the same thing as it actually, it literally is indeterminate, I guess. No, so the Copenhagen interpretation really is genuinely random. Okay. You make it. You make cool. a measurement, and there is no like if the Copenhagen interpretation is correct, there is no possible way to determine. Uh, there's no amount of information you can gather to determine which outcome it will be. 
you all you have is a probability. The many worlds interpretation, again, my preferred one, uh, it 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 uh, intertwines really nicely with my philosophical perspective. So I like it quite a lot. Um, it is completely deterministic. There's no probability anywhere. The Heisenberg and the even the Heisenberg uncertainty principle, it's still there, but it's completely deterministic in that, like, you know, the question of like, well, which one did you measure? Well, that was already determined. So it, it's it's like all there is is a wave function marching, like completely deterministically marching forward. The only thing that's not deterministic is just which which branch you end up end up on. But you end up on every branch, so it is it is yeah. deterministic in that sense. Yeah. Um, but which one's the real you, right? Very true. But yeah, so it, again, it depends. Okay, cool. So uh, it's it's a it's a, not a misconception depending on the framework, but it is depending on another one. Cool. The 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 thing that I would say about that is that people take it like the the popular conception of quantum mechanics. Maybe this is slightly maybe the tide is changing uh, a little bit because of Sean Carroll and things like that. But um, the popular conception of quantum mechanics is just the Copenhagen interpretation. So there's just this belief in people who read PopSci articles that just the universe just is indeterminate and that's that's not up for debate. It's just that's just how it is. Uh, the wave function just does collapse and that's just true. But it's not like this is this is contentious. It's not it's not uh, ironclad. Okay, um, that's all I could think of for misconceptions. But is there something else that you like commonly hear? I assume you just hear all a lot of the woo stuff, and that's the biggest. That's so thing. much of the woo stuff, but, but that's just <laughs> so kind much. of the consciousness thing that we already went over. Yeah, no, no, I think you hit the nail on the head for most of those. Okay, so I have a couple other. Th we're we're good on time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. I got a couple other things. One is uh just random things, and then uh you you made the video about uh, uh string theory is a theory, and then oh, yeah, I don't know if you saw the video I made in response to that. For some reason, I did I watched it? Yeah, no, it did. It, my videos haven't been getting sent out a whole lot either. I'm yeah, kind of mad the, about it. I, I don't know. I don't know what the deal. Well, I, it, I, it, it was just that one for me. For some reason, TikTok was like, nobody wants to know this. So I'm like, well, I th thought it was a cool. So, um, well, I wanted to end on that, but that's um, fine. So, just kind of like some random things, and uh, this, um, a lot of this I, I learned this morning. So. Uh, I assume you know who, um, um, oh shoot, what's her name? Uh, Sabina Hosenfelder. Yes. How did you know that? Cause I, cause there's not very many women in physics. <laughs> That's well, unfortunately. Yeah, <laughs> man. I, wa I watched a couple of her videos this morning and it, uh, this is where I came up with some additional things to say. Um, and one of the things was she actually said in 2006, there was a paper published that says if humans have free will, then so do particles. Like it's been mathematically proven, basically. And it was by John Conway and Simon uh, Cochin. Do you know anything about that? Like, do you have any thoughts about that? No, but it sounds reasonable because, um, I mean, I don't think that humans have free will, so I'm not worried about it. But it sounds reasonable. I mean, where would the free will come from if not from particles? There, I mean, my guess is that they're just taking this position that like, well, if free will exists, it's not spiritual. It's still some physical property. And so it would have to emerge from particles. That'd be my yeah. guess. I think the, the idea seems to stem from like the photon either can go through slit A or slit B. And uh, because there's a, a probability that it'll go through one or the other, that would be exactly like what people that defend free mm. will say it is. 
the the prob the probabilities. But it's, yeah, they think that it's a result of like quantum effects or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, I see. Yeah, something like that. So okay, I just thought I was like, there's actually a paper that proves that, but it doesn't prove that there's free will and right, that particles right. do. Just if we do, so do particles. But it would also mean that if if particles don't, we don't. And I think most people's intuitive notion of like you know, particles is that they simply don't. And that's the most common thing that that's how I debate uh, free will, because I tell people like, you should link me that article, by the way, I, I, I will. Um, okay. Um, there, whatever are, I don't know what consciousness is, but it, it seems to be an emergent thing that comes from brain states and brain states emerge from uh, neural pathways and neural pathways emerge from the activities of neurons which the activities of neurons are mediated through neurotransmitters. And so it's all deterministic things all the way up that produce. It. And I don't see how there's any room. If, if it, if free will were real, then there would have to be some top down governing force that isn't who we are. That would be non-physical and just so little of that makes any sense. But it's called a soul. Yeah. Well, it could, it could be it could be anything, but yeah, it could be a soul. But that's kind of outside the scope for this one. Maybe you'll have to come back and we can talk about that. Sure. Um, are quantum jumps indeterminate? And also, what are they? Because she was saying that they, or she was implying that people think they are. I think she said she just doesn't believe in quantum jumps. So I should preface this by saying that. I'm sure Sabina Hosenfelder is a brilliant physicist. I am, I don't love her. Um, she, well, I, this is a podcast. I probably shouldn't disparage people. So, but I, I don't, I don't love her. I'll just leave it at that. Um, uh, but she's probably right about this. Um, namely, uh, yeah, like I actually have a video on quantum jumps and uh, I talk about Scott Bakula. Um, <laughs> as a throwaway joke but uh yeah so the idea is that a, a quantum jump was it was the original idea of a quantum jump is that you have electrons at various orbital energies right they're at different like in different shells and the idea is that there's like kind of this spontaneous snapping of it it's in one orbital shell and then it jumps down to the next and there's no in between but that's really not what happens uh it, it it's true oh. that it starts off in one state it ends in the other state but then what happens is that for for some reason there's some perturbation that happens like it, it is caused, it's caused by uh, t like, you know, it'll be caused by some stray, stray photon or something like that, um, perturbing the uh, perturbing the system. Um, what happens is that that perturbation, because it's in a higher energy state than it should be, than it, or than it could be, that perturbation leads to an instability. And so what ends up happening is you have uh, a superposition occur. You have, uh, it starts off in its higher energy state and then quickly over time, it superposes with the lower energy state um, so you basically end up with a gradual mixing. It's never between the two, because if you measured it, it would always be in one or the other. But the probability quickly goes from 100% in the high energy state to 50% in the high energy state, 50% in the low, low energy state, to 100% in the low energy state, 0% in the high energy state. It's just a quick, smooth transition. Oh, okay. So, so when I when I teach this, this is how uh, this is why metals glow, and this is why the hotter they get, they change. This is how I teach it, at least. Um, yep. Metals start to glow red first because that's lower energy, and then uh, orange and yellow, because the electrons they're absorbing that energy, so they have to they move up, and I yep. tell them it's just like pulling on a guitar string. It doesn't it doesn't do anything. 
But when you let go of it, the energy has to be conserved. So the energy it absorbed has to do something or go somewhere. Now in a string, it emits sound, but with yep. these metals, if it's the right kind of energy, it'll release light. And so I say that it, I guess I say it just goes from energy level, for example, like, I don't know, four to two. I guess I never really say it's instantaneous. Maybe I do, but. The the other thing that's confusion, that, that's a confusion for a lot of people is they think of these orbits as just being like, kind of like planetary orbits. So like it would be yeah. jumping from like Mars to Earth and it doesn't pass in between. But it's, it's all that's happening is that there's like a gradual like shifting between the two states. Okay. And that's one of the weird things about quantum mechanics. You can have superposition. You can be in two states at once. Hmm. That's, that's, that's weird. That's interesting. Um, what, uh, what the heck is the next thing? Oh, right. Um, did we answer whether or not they're indeterminate? Oh, uh, yeah, no, they're determined. They, they're determined. They just happen basically instantly and seemingly for no, for no reason. So, oh, okay. uh, I, I actually did research on this for the video I made a while back, which did poorly. It's such a shame because I, I, some, the videos you put the most research into do the most poorly for some reason, Go but, um, but, uh, the, there's. The idea is that if you could perfectly isolate an atom, perfectly isolate it, and then put an electron in a high energy state, it would never decay, ever, because it's uh, it, like it, it's it's in a like it's a the the language is it's a time independent Hamiltonian, um, and it's in an eigenstate, which means that it's stable. But the thing is, is that um, the even if you turned off the lights, there's still cosmic microwave background radiation everywhere, right? True. So there's always going to be stray electromagnetism somewhere. And so it'll all, so, so at any moment in time, every atom is being perturbed just so slightly, and that's enough to kick it down. Wild. <laughs> I can't, so I can't, I can't this is all to say, it. it is determinate yeah. in the sense that it needs something to kick it off. Yeah. But it just always happens. Yeah, because determinate just means it, it's it's whatever it does is dependent upon prior conditions or past yeah. events or something like that. Yeah. So you're just saying if we somehow remove the influence of all things, it could remain in a higher energy state indefinitely, but it's not like, right. it's not violating the conservation of law or, or conservation of energy or anything like that. It's okay, cool. So have you noticed, I think you have, uh, because I saw you laugh in the introduction, uh, but that Marvel is just using quantum as a cheap plot trick over and over and over again. I saw Quantum Mania. Mania uh, I was flying to back to the states uh, a week and a half ago, um, and I, you know, when you're on a nine-hour plane ride, what are you going to do but watch bad movies, right? So I watched Quantum Mania. I it's actually a cute movie. I just wish that it it had nothing to do with quantum. No spoilers, they go to the quantum realm yeah. and it's just like a world down there. They could have just gone to another planet. It would have been the same thing. Yeah, it's uh uh Endgame used it, uh the Ant-Man movies obviously use it. Uh did you see the new Flash movie? No. They kind of they kind of use the idea of alternate alternate realities in there. It's not exactly quantum cuz he he does this by running so fast that he just gets access to like alter it's it's kind the of speed weird. force what can yeah, you do whatever whatever but it, yeah it just i just i'm i just worry that the movies are going to get to the point where it's like yeah let's just use this because we can't we can't think of that, anything creative so let's think of something confusing to make people think we're being like philosophically deep 
It's, like it's either that or wormholes, right? Or yeah, or wormholes. Yeah. So. Or or the multiverse, which they also use in Marvel. Yeah. No. Yeah. They, well, that's kind of in Infinity War. They basically and when they when Hulk talks to oh, what's her name? The not the Guardian, but uh, shoot, what's her name? The the bald lady that. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I it's the whole thing with the uh, doc with Doctor Strange, right? Doctor like he Strange. accesses the multiverse or whatever. Yeah, Multiverse yeah. of Madness was one of the movies. <laughs> All right, well, it's a good movie, but it's yeah, I I find it to be a little bit cheap, and it's just kind of cute. And Hollywood doesn't really try; they try as little as they need to most of the time. So it's just an observation, I guess. Um. So this is kind of a, a funny, a, a personal one for me. So um, we have no idea why water goes turbulent. Do you have any like insight into that? Like what's the, why? It, it seems like the biggest mysteries in the universe are quantum mechanics and why does water do this? <laughs> or any so, fluid technically, I guess. It, you're talking about the Navier-Stokes equation. Um I don't know if I don't know if that's what I don't know if you know that that's the context of what you're asking about, but um, um, no. But I just I read this in a book. I think it's a quote from Heisenberg. He said, "When he dies, if he meets God or the devil, he'll ask him two questions: uh, why relativity and why does water go turbulent?" And he famously said, "I think God will know the answer to the first one." So uh, there's this really really famous equation called the Navier-Stokes equation. Um, and I have to Google because I don't actually know if it's a Millennium Prize, but um, it's basically, it's actually, it, it's a differential equation. It's just one of those laws of motion um, that uh, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's uh, yeah, it's a Millennium Prize um, from the Clay, Clay, Clay Institute. Uh, the idea is that it basically tells you how fluids behave. Um, it tells you how they flow under pressure and temperature gradients and all that lovely stuff. The trouble is, is the equation is horribly, horribly, horribly nonlinear. Uh, and it's, you know, it's a second order differential equation in three very well in three variables. And it's just very, very bad. And so like, just, this is just a math problem at this point. Uh, you'll win a million dollars if you can prove it. But the there's questions about whether this math problem has solutions. That's it. That's and the whole should, thing. We just don't know. We just don't know. We just don't know. <laughs> Uh, now, no, it's it's a math equation, so we can approximate it. And for all intents and purposes, we do. And it works very, very well. The question of, it's a question of existence and uniqueness. Is, it's a thing that pops up in math, in math a lot, where basically, given a set of input data, can you, you, can you uniquely, or can you prove that, there, that that input data will lead to a solution that can like keep going forever, like it doesn't just terminate and then like explode? Um, and will it lead to a unique solution? That's that's the problem, and we just don't know if that's the case. And the thing is, is the Navier-Stokes equation, because it describes fluid motion, describes turbulence, and turbulence is chaotic, which is why it's so difficult to describe or difficult to even talk about the Navier-Stokes equation, because chaotic systems are very, very complicated to describe. I wonder, it would be cool to talk to like a visual effects artist and ask them, like, when you have to recreate this, is this a huge problem? Like, do you have to do it in a very, because I wonder if like this would mean it's very hard to like make a simulation that does it, or if it's actually kind of easy because you can approximate it or whatever. You know, I, I haven't thought about that, but it's it's probably quite hard. I mean, like, I'm sure you remember, I don't know, did you play video games? Do you still play, I mean. Oh yeah. So like, like, water, like, like water graphics haven't like only got good in like the last 
maybe seven or eight years, right? Yeah. They like like they were just like kind of glassy, and now they're like really really good. Just I imagine just in advances and simulation techniques and things like that. Yeah, smoke is another thing that's just really hard. It's also, to... a fluid. Yeah, the, uh, the I remember <laughs> video games are are just so fun because I I think back of video games that made like leaps in things like Crisis. Famously, their lighting engine. Everybody was like. That's a game that looked ahead of its time. Most games don't, but that one did. I remember Call of Duty 2, their smoke simulations looked so real back then. But really all it was, was like, it would be like, it would start off as a cloud of smoke. And it basically just stretched and got bigger. It didn't really transform. But back then it looked amazing because before then, smoke was just, it was just a fog that just gradually yeah. got more and more dense. And that's not particularly interesting or special um the last random thing and this came from uh, i i watched sabine's video on well i did a couple things so this is this has to deal with can an event in the present really affect an event in the past so i'll i'll, I'll frame this by just going over how i got here i rewatched the pbs spacetime video about the delayed choice quantum eraser and I watched that and I was totally mystified by it. I always have to remind myself how the hell it works. Because <laughs> it's, it's confusing. But then I, I saw that Sabine made a video about it. And she said, no, uh, the delayed choice quantum eraser is not special. And from what I understood, she said, the reason it's actually not special, that it doesn't affect events that happened in the past, is because the interference pattern that's revealed by looking at the two detectors over here they are just two non-overlapping halves of a yep. non-interference pattern. Yes. So that's that's absolutely. If you add, yeah, if you added them together, you would just get the non-interference pattern. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, it, it kind of bums me out because I want to think that events in the present uh, change which slit the electron went through in the past because that's just so bonkers and cool. But it's it's also nice to know that we know what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in fact, so so I have a video on this from a while ago. It must have been one of my earlier videos. Um, and uh, this, it, I basically based it off of Sean Carroll's blog. Sean Carroll's, Sean Carroll's like, I emailed that guy uh, a few months back because I read an article of his. I'm just like, hey, this is really cool. Can you answer some questions? He never got back to me, of course. But um, uh, I, yeah, he has a blog post on the delayed choice quantum eraser on, and how you can understand it using the many worlds interpretation. And it's quite a slick uh, description. So, hmm. you know, to anyone interested. Yeah, he's I I like listening to him more than any scientist. I feel like I really like Neil. His his Star Talk thing is so cool because they because they go all over the place. Yeah. And he's he definitely knows so much and he's he's fun to listen to. And it's really funny, too, is is the other oh, yeah. thing. But, but, uh, Sean just makes it see, he just, I don't know. He just makes, he's so, he just knows what he's saying. He just yep. seems he's like very precise. Yes. He, he doesn't, he never says, uh, or, um, which is every other word I say sometimes when I'm talking about stuff like this. And he just, he requires no processing time. He can just talk about so many things. It's so cool. Yeah. Um, Okay, so the final thing is um, what counts as a scientific theory? So I've, I've, I've thought about this, and what I did was I, I did some digging. This is more philosophical, I guess, but I, I did some digging into, like, 
schools of epistemology or how you do epistemology. So like somebody like Leibniz or Leibniz or Descartes, they were rationalists. They were, they were pure rationalists. And uh, math is pure reason. I, I can't think of anything else that math is. It, it, it seems like it's just pure reason to me. So they would think that you can know something or you can prove something through reason alone. Descartes never thought that a human could actually do this, but it's, it, it's in principle doable. But most of us, um, like people like me, or when we think about science, we think of science as it has to be empirical. And an empiricist, which would be like uh, David Hume or, or John Locke or like you like an experimental scientist is you have to have something observed, right? It has to be empirical. So um, we can get into like what makes a, th a theory, why something that's that seems like it's almost purely uh, mathematical, like maybe string theory still counts as, as a theory, even though it doesn't really have an empirical lens to it. We, we can get into that in a, in a second, I guess. But would you say that quantum mechanics and like theoretical physics, are they more like, would you say that they're more uh, rationalist or more imperialist or are they just kind of both? And also, would you say it's more metaphysics than science? I, I've heard that Copenhagen is metaphysical, the Copenhagen interpre interpretation. So the in, so asking about interpretations at all is people have thought, it, it's been said that in any interpretation is metaphysics. Okay. Um, the, I, I, I kind of disagree with that. I think it's actually possibly testable. Um, that's neither here nor there. Um, uh, I don't remember who said this, but quantum mechanics is by no mean means a rationalist approach. Um, it, if only because I, I think somebody said of quantum mechanics, who ordered that? Um, like, like nobody wanted it to be this way. The universe behaves in such a nice and beautiful way prior to the year 1900. Every, it was like clockwork. You could predict things with perfect accuracy. All you had to know was the initial conditions. Everything worked out wonderfully. You had gravity, you had electromagnetism. And then a wrench gets thrown into it because of the data, because of an experiment that was done. And now we're like stuck with this messy uh, Hamiltonians and Hilbert spaces and uncertainty principles and all of this stuff. And nobody ordered that. So no, it, I mean, it's, it's, it's fundamentally uh, an empirical science, empirical piece of science. Um, now to solve some of the problems, um, especially as you get into things like quantum field theory and, um, you know, things like that, you know, um, you have theorists coming up with ideas, uh, sometimes driven by data, sometimes as in, look, we have this problem that we don't understand, but maybe I'll come up with something brand new. But for the most part, it is entirely empirical, I would say. In fact, arguably, uh, relativity is more of a uh, rationalist view. Uh, Einstein sat down and had a thought experiment. True. And uh, came up with a series. Now, he was motivated by uh, experiments as well. He was motivated by Maxwell, by uh, who was an experimentalist and sort of a theorist. Uh, he was uh, motivated by uh, the um, Michelson-Morley experiment and so on. But in some sense, he kind of just sat down and was like, I'm going to have a think about what it's like to write on a, on a beam of light, right? That's awesome. So, like, with regard to scientific theories, um, without trying to repeat too much of what I said, what I said about it is I didn't try to answer what is a theory, but I tried to explain why people like me who aren't scientists kind of get confused about it. 
So like we have like string theory, which hasn't so far, as far as I'm aware, produced anything empirical. Um, but we still call it a theory because to me, I, I, I think that string theorists are scientists. I, I, I still think that they are. Someone, someone call them mathematicians. Yeah. Well, I, I guess. So I've also, I've also heard like, and like theoretical physics, it's science, but I've heard you debate, like you were debating Angel once and he told you like, uh, that there was a paper that was published that proved something about the holographic universe or something like that. And you said, well, no, it's just a paper. There's never been any experimental uh, proof of it or whatever. Yeah. So that's why I, that's where I say maybe what's really going on is some of these scientists, they're working in a, in a rationalist, like their, their epistemic approaches is rationalism, whereas others it's empiricism, but it can still count as a theory as long as they're being consistent with their sort of approach to it. So, I mean, I'm a descriptivist as far as language is concerned, meaning that like, I don't care what words mean as long as we all, as long as we, we know what people are talking about. So like, look, like theorists in particular and um, mathematicians all the time use the word theory. So it's just important that we know what they mean when they say the word theory. And they don't mean something that's been tested. They don't mean, you know, like evolution. They don't mean like germ theory. They don't mean like, uh, you know, the general theory of relativity and all of this. They just mean a framework, like I said in the video. So, um, but I don't think it's from a different philosophical or epistemological approach. I mean, like in some sense, I'm like hardly even a theorist. I'm like closer to a mathematician than a theorist, right? Um, I like I, I spend my days working uh, in. <laughs> I made a joke to my. I don't know. Maybe we've had this conversation, but I made a joke to the, my boss in uh, here in Europe that uh, you know we're having trouble with these low-lying dimensional cases like four dimensions. So maybe we just work in thirty-nine dimensions and then just you know we'll we'll deal with the details later. And like that's very much a that's very much a like how could this how could this thing that you're working on have anything to do with reality, right? Um, and, but, but the point is, is that, uh, the, what a theorist does today and really since the seventies, perhaps is very, very different to what a theorist has ever done in the, in, in the past in physics, at least like, a, at least as far as like quantum gravity theory, um, uh, you know, particle physics theory, these kinds of stuff. Um, and the reason I say that is because we have nothing to guide us. We have no new experimental evidence that is mysterious. All of the current models are so, so accurate. There's, there's just nothing, but we know that something's going to go wrong. We like, like this is the quite like the, the quest for quantum gravity is a real thing. It has to exist because we know that black holes exist. We know that something happened in the early universe, but we have nothing to guide us on that. Mm -hmm. So you end up with people not looking towards experiment, trying to verify and understand poorly understood data but really trying to come up with an idea in, in some sense from a purely rationalist perspective and just be like look we know something has to work let's just try to think about it really hard and figure it out and so so it, i mean it's it's almost out of necessity that it's become that way because there's just not there's there like the empirical approach has just failed us for the last 50 years yeah yeah and that sort of is the quote-unquote crisis in physics it's like we haven't <laughs> we haven't made it like we discovered all these particles and and all this stuff and but we're not really 
we, we still don't have answers to some of those questions that are almost 100 years old and stuff like that. And uh, yep. it's kind of like the, the LHC, too. It's like after the Higgs boson, what? Well, so far, almost not nothing because, you know, it has some sort of like trickle out there effects. Was, there was like the tetraquark and pentaquark discoveries, which were kind of neat. Um, but again, that's that's like kind of, yay, we confirmed that we that something exists that we thought existed. So there's um, no there's no surprises. I didn't realize this, but it's going back online for the first time in like, what, four years or something like that? I think they had to do, well, yeah, I don't know how long it was offline. I know that they take it down regularly for like maintenance and stuff and they have to replace all those stuff. So maybe, maybe it's been four years. I don't know. God, that's just like, like how many experiments have they done there? I, I, I don't, you'd think it's, I just, in my head, I'm like, yeah, isn't it on like all the time? <laughs> isn't it like a microwave where they're just like doing stuff uh, well, multiple times? But So uh, there's multiple experiments running simultaneously, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I have one thing that I thought of as you were talking, and then I, I don't really have anything else. But what's the difference between a theorem and a theorem with a U and an E? I've never heard a theorem with a U. It's, I, think one, I, I think one's like math. One's math and one's like science or something like that. Okay, so so a th I've never heard of a theorem with a U. <laughs> I look, go to Wiktionary and it says misspelling of theorem with an E. Oh, really? For some reason, I was thinking there was something different. So maybe it's just theory and I mean, theorem. Theory, yeah, theory and theorem. There is a difference there. Oh, um, okay. Well, probably just I'm just gonna pretend that I never said that. Okay. <laughs> One forty, because it just turns out I just didn't know what I was talking about. If you I want, I can was... talk about the difference between a theory and a theorem. I thought there if that's was... useful. Um. Sure, let's do that. Okay, so I'll, we'll, I'll yeah, yeah, I'll, sure, I'll go ahead. Do this. <clears throat> so the last thing I can think of is like, uh, what's the difference between a theory and a theorem? Um. One is the job of a physicist or a scientist. The other is the job of a mathematician. Okay, that, that's uh, the, what I thought. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So theorems are true. Theorems are just, they're just always true. What, you have a set of assumptions, and then given those assumptions, something is true. If those assumptions are false, then maybe the thing's not true. But, but if the assumptions are true, the result is true. A theory is, I mean, we just talked about that. Theory is a, describes something about physical reality. That's it. Sure. I guess sort of... Um... I did think of one other thing. I never really got your, I, I've heard you kind of describe it like, what is a theory? I've heard you say they're just models. That's all they are. Um, well, which definition? Well, I don't know. Yeah, so, okay, so, 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 okay, so we, we can both agree that the lay, the lay definition of a theory is just a guess, and it's a very silly definition. But the, uh, I, I would say that, uh, I'm repeating what's in my video, I would say that there's two other definitions of theory that is used commonly in uh, academic circles. There is this, or, uh, or academic or academic adjacent circles. There is the science communicator version of a theory. Of a theory. Uh, and I, I don't even know how old this notion of a theory is, but um, it's the idea that it is a model that accurately describes the world around us. Plain and simple, it's been experimentally verified, it uh, makes good predictions, it's falsifiable, all these lovely things. And then there's the word theory as is perhaps, at least in my field, more often used than that definition, which is just a framework. It's a collection of, it's, it's like a collection of paradigms, a collection of structures, perhaps, 
collection of ideas and linked linked uh, concepts that kind of describe a thing in its entirety. So uh, something that I work on, and and this is this is used in mathematics too, by the way. Um, I work on uh, conform the, the the theory of conformal invariance. So I'm developing kind of a scaffolding. Uh, I don't have to define those terms because it's not relevant. Doesn't matter. But I'm developing a scaffolding to basically describe the structure of all of these things in a kind of complete way. Now it has nothing to do with well, I mean, it can be applied to physics, but like it's, it's like a, it's a mathematical thing. It's 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 a framework, and you could say that string. Or actually, let's even talk about something that's is a theory in the scientific sense: quantum field theory. Quantum field theory has no physical content in it whatsoever. It's just it, it like quantum field theory is it's a framework. It basically is a a way to describe um, fields that behave in a quantum way and obey special relativity and so on. But it doesn't tell you that there are electrons. It doesn't tell you that gluons interact with up quarks. You have to put that in by hand. And so when you have this framework, then you can build a model from it. You can take your underlying theory, your underlying framework, and then attach stuff on top of it. Data, experimental, uh, experimental inputs, um, assumptions maybe about how the real world works. And then you can build a model and test it based off of that framework. But quantum field theory on its own it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the real world. There's so many quantum field theories that you can write down that are just completely unrelated to the real world, but we still call it a theory because it's useful. It's like a complete frame, complete framework. So that's what I would say a theory is. I would say that there's the SciComm version and then there's the scientist version. Um, well, I think that's, uh, that's, that's basically all I had. So if you had anything in closing, otherwise, thanks a lot for being here. Yeah, I got nothing. Thanks for having me. <laughs> You're welcome. Thanks for listening. Thank you.